This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Pele, the side that you've never seen of him. What's next for Canadian professionals? And are Holland and Mbappe ready to take the torch from Messi and Ronaldo? It is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here with you on the Sportsnet Radio Network and on your favorite podcatcher. We'd love it if you would subscribe and leave a review. We do appreciate it. Jeff, what's going on? Hey, Danny, what's up? Oh, you know, just another uh, great weekend of football. And uh, it was great Mm -hmm. to have Champions League back last week. Mbappe and and Holland. um, The goal Holland scored on Sportsnet this weekend was majestic. And everything uh, Mbappe did against Barcelona last week was... You know, it just felt like um, we're watching the new guys. I know they don't really play for the traditional clubs, but kind of feels like they're starting to take that torch. Yeah, and I think the question will be, where do they go from here? They may be ready to take the torch, but nobody in uh, Ligue 1 or the Bundesliga is going to get that torch playing in that league, in those leagues, I should say. They're they're obviously going to have to move on. Um, I imagine there would be a feeding frenzy for both of them. And the guy to me to watch, I think of the two of them, is Mbappe, just because his, I think his his skill set might hold up a little longer than Holland. My caveat there would be Holland's game is probably the type of game that as he slows down, he may be able to make to make an adjustment. He may be able to change the way he plays. May be able to to change how he positions himself. But it, really, what it, what it's going to come down to, Danny, is who's the next coach to get their hands in these guys. And I think that's that's always a big thing when you're at this stage of your career. Like which coach, which team, which system is going to take these guys and take them and take them to the next level. Um, and it can happen at Dortmund, obviously. And it's certainly not going to happen at PSG. So that, to me, is the real question. I honestly, I don't know where either, where either of them are going to end up. They would fit in every team in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, let's face it. There isn't a club in the world. You know, finance is obviously going to be a factor. But let's say all things being equal, there isn't a club in the world that wouldn't take either of them. But I'm still a little bigger on Mbappe. And I think maybe, and this is not necessarily Holland's fault, but I think the fact that Mbappe is going to be a factor in international competition, right? He is going to be playing in Euros. He is going to be playing in World Cups. And we can't say the same thing necessarily about Holland. And I think that may be the thing that ends up kind of separating them in the public's mind. It always comes down to it from the casual fans' perspective. What did you do in international tournaments? And we've seen that. Uh, play out with Ronaldo and Messi through the years. Um, it's it, it'll also depend on where their club careers end up. Um, unlike you know the other battles of you know great players in years past, Real Madrid and Barcelona having Ronaldo and Messi for so long and the many battles that they had. You also had two of the best managers at the time, Jose Mourinho and and Pep Guardiola. It just created so many great storylines and fed into the Messi versus Ronaldo story we've been playing alongside with for the last decade. Uh, so I don't think it, it'll end up being quite like that. We will never have something quite like that again, more than likely, but no, the uh, only, they are, the only way that yeah, happens, I, I was going to say the only way I think that happens, Danny, is if they both end up in the same league. And that's, that's yeah. the other thing, you know, look, Ronaldo and Messi have been part of the furniture in soccer for years and years and years. 
But I think it was really when they were in the same league that that rivalry really kind of crystallized. So that's the other thing that has to happen here, I think, is you have to have that element of, um, you know, that common league, right? You've got to be able to see them against each other for, I don't know how many times a year. You really need that, I think, for it to crystallize because that to me is when Ronaldo and Messi really took off, right? It was must-see TV. It was must must watch if you're a footy fan. It didn't matter whether you had invested interest in either Real or Barca. It didn't matter. But it was must see, and you got a chance to see them play each other a lot, and also in domestic cup competitions. So that's mm-hmm. what I think is going to need to happen for this rivalry to, uh, you know, to really crystallize. It is a kick in the grass coming up in a little bit. Uh, we've got Marcel de Jong, a Canadian international, now the president of the Pro Footballers Association here in Canada and uh, their quest to get uh, more rights for players, especially in the Canadian Premier League. But uh, tomorrow, February 23rd, the Pele documentary will be dropping on Netflix, and we had the chance to speak with directors of the film, co-directors David Trihorn and Ben Nicholas from Pitch International. Um, Jeff, how do you remember Pele? Because... You know, we're pretty much 50 years on now from his last uh, his last match with Brazil. Right. Grainy footage. You know, the way I think of Pele is is a guy that's at every FIFA event and he's always in a suit, always looks clean cut, always saying the right thing, um, wants to make sure everybody knows how many goals he scored. It's, uh, you know, Pele is, I mean, he is kind of football's grandfather, I guess, right yeah. now, but, um, you know, to say that I uh, adored him when he played, I mean, I all I've seen is, you know, the grainy footage that we, we still have available. Yeah, my memories of him probably are towards the end of his career uh, when he was playing for New York. And you know, clearly, that, clear, clearly that's not vintage Pelé. But he was a big deal, and I'm old enough that I can remember the fact he was a big deal. I, I can remember the buzz it created when he came over here. And you're right, you know, if Diego Maradona is soccer's sort of really weird old uncle, like the, the uncle that shows up at your dinner and you go, Jesus, just don't do that or don't say anything or don't, you know, don't, don't get in that argument or don't, don't throw the food around, right? That's Maradona. Pele is a little different. There's, a, there's kind of an understated elegance to him, and the only time, you know, I was sort of in his company, I really wasn't in his company, but it was at the Beijing Olympics, and he had come out to watch one of the women's matches. And he was literally going up an escalator, and I was behind him. And just the way that he moved through that crowd, and there was a big crowd there, and everybody knew who Pele was, obviously. That, the other thing that really stood out to me, the two times I saw people in, in Beijing going nuts around athletes. One was Kobe Bryant, which was just an another level, other level insanity. It was remarkable. But the second was Pelé. And he was very, he moved very slowly through the crowd. He stopped and made eye contact with people. You, you could tell you were in, not in the company of royalty, but you could tell that royalty was around you. And the thing that I found really interesting is, and I don't know if this is, Dan, if this is just, is just fluke or whatever, But he didn't appear like there wasn't a huge FIFA or IOC entourage around. There may have been three or four guys. Uh, I think one might have been a security guy. 
but they were very um, matter of fact, and he seemed completely at ease with things. And you're right, he is. He's kind of soccer's grandfather. He's the guy that shows up and makes everybody happy. I loved Maradona, but let's face it, Maradona showed up in a, at an event and you were worried. Huh? You know, <laughs> what was he going to do? Yeah. What was he going to say? You never have to worry about Pele in that regard. And as this documentary points out, however, there's a real texture to Pele. You know, it's not all glamour. It's not all elegance. There's another side of Pele that because of the area or, or because of the era that he was in when he dominated the game, just wasn't talked about, right? It, it wasn't a matter of public discourse because nobody knew. And you don't see that now. You wouldn't see that now, right? You look at how much do we know about Cristiano Ronaldo's personal life compared yeah. to <laughs> Pele's personal life, right? Yeah. It's insane. I mean, they live their lives on Instagram and everything. And, you know, Ronaldo and Messi have kind of created this um, figure about themselves. And, mm -hmm. and Pele was kind of the first to do that, right? I mean, he... He's 17 when he wins the World Cup in 58. And, and this is kind of what the film shows. And, and, you know, everything I've always read about Pele is always peachy and rosy. And the guy never had a, you know, he never had a red flag on him at all. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, this goes into a little bit more detail of some of the downs in his career and also kind of a, the figure that he became in Brazil during a very trying political time through through the 60s and even some criticism for um you know not being too shy about his relationship with the government uh, which mm -hmm. was not uh, is not looked upon well as history he, has come come along yeah and i'll also say this about pele and that and the documentary is a very it's frank like this is what i like about it it's not a hagiography you're gonna watch it you're gonna come away understanding more about pele it's not going to change your mind of, about him, I don't think. It'll give you a little more uh, greater idea of what he was about as a person. Mm -hmm. But he's still, you know, I was thinking about this before you did this interview. He is, he's an international citizen. Like, how many people in the world in your lifetime are international citizens? In other words, people who can go to any country and they are a cultural figure in addition to an athlete, Right. And I'm not yeah. saying he had the same pact in the world as Nelson Mandela, because clearly he didn't. But there is that aspect to his life. The only athlete I can think of now who would fit into that category was, is Usain Bolt. You know, there are a lot of great athletes around the world, but the only athlete who could walk into any house anywhere in the world and probably be at home would be Usain Bolt. And I think Pele, for that reason, is in a very special class of human beings. He is, in addition to a great soccer player, he is a, he's a citizen of the world. And I don't know if we'll ever see anybody else like that, to be honest. I, I really don't. It's a really great way to put it. And I think um, the documentary does go into to detail how he became that person, how he was a world figure, and his standing in Brazil and how he is still an endearing figure but it focuses mostly on the years of his career from 58 mm -hmm. to 70, the three World Cups that he wins, uh, starting as a 17 year old and then culminating as an almost 30 year old for his third in 1970. And joining us uh, earlier this week, uh, David Trihorn and Ben Nicholas, the directors of the Pele film dropping on Netflix February 23rd. Here is my conversation with them. Thank you for your time today, guys. Um, I, I got to watch the film last night, and um, 
for somebody um, like me who's young, grew up a football fan, I guess, you know, my first uh, football love was sort of uh, Diego Maradona. Mm. Um, and Pele is obviously um, the one before that. And you don't get to see a lot of footage. Um, but from what you guys did with the film, I think, you know, my big takeaway is you're telling the story of the forgotten football figure. You know, we have Messi, Ronaldo, and we saw the Maradona documentary last year and everything that's been around him. But mm. with Pele, it's almost as if you're telling the new generation of the first one, the, the original um, transcendent football star. I think that's exactly it. We, we, you know, when we set out to make this film, uh, as years go by, while Pele's always been the reference point against which everyone else is judged, uh, as years go by, he gets slightly dismissed, I think. And, he, and, and people will sort of make jokes about his goal count. And Pele can sometimes get a little bit chippy about it because that's all he's ever asked about, comparing himself to all these other people. Um, so I think we wanted to really contextualise him and show people, you know, this is why he became the figure he did. And he's kind of, you know, since uh, Maradona passed away and Cruyff passed away, Di Stefano, he is kind of last man standing of these sort of old legends of the game. Uh, and so the timing felt right to do that as well and remind people he's 80 years old now. He's in a much more reflective space. It just felt great timing to show people sort of what he did uh, and how he achieved it and, and why he is this kind of mythical figure. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably slightly different for us um, in England, in Europe, uh, obviously how we see him but because of the era he played in I think we always felt that Pelé was someone who maybe lacked that definitive kind of cultural reference point for a modern audience um, so what we really wanted to do was try and explain how this kid comes out of nowhere to become this mythical character how do you become a mythical character at 17 what's the context behind that what's the meaning behind that uh, because everyone has this kind of superficial knowledge of Pelé but maybe they don't understand the context and meaning that makes him this figure uh, and then also as Dave says, you know, you've also got to try and humanize him to try and understand him on a human level. So I think our mission at the beginning was to try and explain the myth, but also humanize the myth. And we thought if we could do those two things, we might be onto something. And yeah. just very quickly, Dan, something you pointed out about him being the sort of the first, the pioneer, is another thing. While we go out of our way to avoid these comparisons, these sort of cross-generational comparisons, what we do want people to sort of take away is that this guy was the first. He was Elvis. You know, Messi might be better than him. Ronaldo might be better than him. Who knows? It's not really for us to judge. But no one can tread in his footsteps. There can only be one guy who's the first. And the idea of, you know, that first World Cup in 58 and the immediate publicity and public life that comes with it, it sort of, it felt like it shaped how he would move forward and how it affected him as, as he grew up. In 58, you see that pure joy on his face when things start happening. But I don't think he really realizes what he's quite done at that stage. You know, he becomes the symbol, the catalyst for a completely new Brazil. Brazil before Pelé and after Pelé, or before 58 and after 58, are two totally different places. So he's not only, he's not only changing his life, he's changing the life of a whole country. And that becomes such a profound moment for the country that he, as we said, instantly attains his mythical status. Uh, so what the film tries to do is show over this 12-year period, how we go from 58 to 70 and how he changes and how the, how the country changes as well. And he's coming in at just the right time. You know, post-58, it's the birth of kind of modern media. 
birth of celebrity endorsements, all these various things. He's in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And I think that's also super important, that, that sort of post-58 period. Uh, Pele almost runs with that fame. And whereas a lot of people tend to crumble under those pressures, he is able to kind of absorb it and become this absolutely magnetic figure that everyone is attracted to. What did you learn about him while getting to interview and, and making this film? Learn about the sort of the current Pele or... Yeah, him in general. Is there something about him that just stood out to you the more you kind of dove into those 12 years that you highlight through the film? I think his pride, really. I think he's a very, very proud guy. Um, you know, he would be adamant about, you know, we talk about certain things. I'm sure we'll chat about it in a bit. You know, when people level at him that he was too apolitical, too establishment. And I think that probably hurts him because I think he's extremely proud of what he did on the pitch and how he represented his country. And obviously there, there were enormous pressures on him to be the face of modern Brazil and to sort of carry the burdens or the hopes of a, a whole country on his shoulders. And I think he's extremely proud of how he handled that, how he behaved and what he meant for his country. And hopefully that comes across and that's why it was so important for us to make a film where, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of sports docs these days will, have, will head in the direction of using archive only. And uh, we thought it was crucial to have him on camera so that the audience really start to, you know, spend some time with him and feel close to him and, and, and really understand the journey he went through and, you know, just giving people an opportunity to sit with him and uh, see how he reacts to these different things that happen during those 12 years. Yeah, you usually see uh, him just in, uh, you know, uh, public settings, right, where he's on a stage and he's, uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot being made of him and it's a very formal setting, um, whereas this, you get Pele and you get to see his facial reactions as you're going through the different stories and how things affected him, but you know, I, I know in today's landscape, athletes, um, especially, you know, you see LeBron James and mm. different types of big, big athletes, faces that are recognized all around the world in the same way that Pele was, that they are open about what matters to them and what uh, they feel is, is social justice in a sense. Whereas Pele, um, he wanted to just let his football do the talking and let joy be brought that way. And I guess there's some level of criticism on him for that. Uh, mm. At least it seemed to come through a little bit on the film. Yeah, I think in in simple terms, that is definitely true that he he thought he could do his talking on the pitch. But I think it's also important to remember that LeBron and all these guys have seen countless other people do these things now. So there's there's a precedent there and there's a choice that these guys can make and they know they're not harming their legacy by going down that route or anything. And I think Pelé, as I said, came from a period where he really suited that late 50s, early 60s era. He, he was perfectly built for that time. And uh, when the world changes around the mid 60s, he's maybe caught out of step slightly. But as I said, there's no real precedent, no, no example for him to follow there. And uh, he's created this Pelé character that's got him through the first half of his career in just incredible fashion. <laughs> so I think it's quite hard for him to suddenly pivot and become a, you know, a radical figure or, or you know, someone who's challenging the establishment because I think his background was... He goes into it, but he explains his family background slightly. His background would have been unbelievably happy to see him as part of the establishment. So for him to turn around and suddenly halfway through his career become a divisive figure, I think was something that would have been quite alien to him. Yeah, as you say, his idea was to bring people together with what he was doing on the pitch. 
And as Ben said, there, there were no precedents at that time that he could follow. And I think even in Brazil, I think that the temptation is generally to always compare Brazil with the US. And it doesn't quite work as simply as that. And so while there obviously were civil rights movements in Brazil, not to the same extent as there were in the US. So it wasn't like he was resisting joining certain movements. It wasn't like there were any other high profile players who were going out against the dictatorship in Brazil. You know, that happened towards the, the mid to late 70s, early 80s amongst Brazilian players. So in a way, he was going with the status quo, but that was almost the only direction that everyone was flowing. Yeah, it, it does feel a little bit uh, in the same way as uh, Michael Jordan almost. And mm. uh, how MJ, you know, didn't uh, Republicans wear sneakers too sort of thing, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just not taking a political stance and letting your your sporting do kind of the talking and you see it um, with all the success. I mean, he's the only player still to have won three World Cups. And the part of it that I didn't quite, you know, um, know personally going into the film was just how going to that 70 World Cup, he wasn't sure about it. And after 66, he was done with the national team and done with with World Cups. And here he is being brought back uh, partially because of the political status in, in Brazil. And and he almost fights with that as they go on to win the World Cup. That's something that, um, you know, we're huge football fans from a huge football country. And we didn't really know that before. I think there's a, it's just human nature, really. When, you, when you're looking back at sport from bygone eras to see all the legends in this kind of rose-tinted way. But uh, yeah, for, it was quite a thrill for us to see this. The idea that people were writing Pelé off before 70. The idea that he wasn't sure whether he should play. The idea that it might be a risk to his legacy to go one more time. Those are all kind of crazy things for us as well. And that was a big a fun part of the film for us to kind of piece together that narrative. There was actually a big decision for him to make and for the country to make about, you know, what kind of country they wanted to be uh, in the build up to 70. It settled us down early on as well, because I think obviously when we took the film on, one of those doubts is, well, Pele's career trajectory is just one big rise. Mm. And, and as, as great as that is, there's not much dramatic tension in that in terms of creating a cinematic film. So when we suddenly found out about quitting in 66 and people writing him off before 70 and we were thinking, wow, this is the king of football, but people weren't believing in him before his greatest moment. Um, it allowed us then to shape the film and, and, and to bring a real kind of narrative thread to the whole thing. I remember 66 especially because quite a lot of the people we spoke to in Brazil were sort of, no, no, he didn't quit after 66. He definitely didn't quit. And we started doubting it as yeah. well. I was like, we've got to find some archive where he actually admits it and he does it. I think that was probably one of our eureka moments uh, in finding the archive when I think it was um, something from Portuguese TV where they'd interviewed him in the airport in Lisbon on the way back from the 66 World Cup and he confirms that he was quitting the national team. And those are those beautiful moments in the edit suite where you, you can really rejoice and go, ah, brilliant, we can tell this story now. Thinking about the, the big documentaries that have been made, you know, The Last Dance on Netflix as, as well and even the Maradona uh, documentary yeah. that came out last year, they had their own film crews. They had this you know, film that's just been sitting there waiting to be uncovered, but you guys had to, to go in a very different direction. You had to find uh, a lot. And just how did that shape the way that, that you decided to tell this story? I suppose it's, like, yeah, it's slightly chicken and egg in that the archive, you have to be led by the archive slightly. So we had to get a grasp of what was out there. There would be no point deciding, you know, let's go into a period of his career where there is no footage. So you've got to play to your strengths slightly, but that helps you as well. Cause you know, once we'd seen 70 in its full glory, you know, 
we knew that had to be the climax. We knew that was a Ridley Scott level uh, set piece for the end of the film. So we could start there and then work backwards almost. And then it's just a trick of finding the bits of archive that will get you emotionally connected to his story. So by the time we get to 70, the audience are feeling invested in, in the story and invested in Pelé as a character. It's that slightly weird thing with old archives that you're, you're always, um, a public figure like Pelé always had a camera in his face. But you do go back to the late 50s, early 60s, and, and, and it's quite hard to find these kind of coherent scenes. As you say, it's not like someone's got a camcorder on their shoulder recording everything. These guys were recording to the 10 second bursts on film. The beauty of that is you get some incredibly beautiful filmic images that look like they were shot yesterday. Uh, the downside is sometimes, you know, you're lacking audio or you're lacking sort of a, a, whole, a whole scene. So our challenge was always to kind of piece these little bits of archive together where we were able to, to create these broader scenes that the viewer can settle into. I really liked uh, some of the scenes with him um, in watching the 66 mm. uh, World Cup and in his in his home theater, I'm, I'm guessing, is yeah. <laughs> is where that was. And as you mentioned earlier, David, there's not a, a lot of disappointments through his career. Um, and there was that and how he still wears uh, that disappointment in the, the 1966 World Cup. I think the fun thing is this is a guy who's always had adulation his entire life. And I imagine he's been presented with his moments or made to watch his great moments time and time again. So one of the things we talked about when we had an idea of doing certain set pieces, uh, you know, 66 came up because we actually even thought, I doubt he's actually been shown his failures many times. You know, no one's dared to go, look, this is when things didn't go well for you. And I think that paid off really well for us because, as you say, you can actually see the still quite raw emotion in his face. And I, I, we couldn't help feel he was watching that game for the first time in quite some time. And you could mm. still see how it annoyed him. He's such a competitive guy. Uh, one of the beauties of when, when you see him play, it's, he's so strong and ferocious and competitive. And I think still has that competitive spirit deep down. So you could see it, it, it rankled with him. Yeah, we tried a few things with him. And uh, the ones that are in the film are the ones where you can definitely feel that connection. That you, can, you can see him emotionally involved in that. 66 scene and you, you similarly with the shoebox when he's playing the shoebox in the film you can see you know that image speaks volumes I hope because that's talking about where he's come from and his journey and he's, he's transporting himself backwards uh, when he's got that shoebox on his lap and I, I think that hopefully that comes across in the film as well. I uh, also enjoyed the scenes of his 1000th goal you know things that yeah. um, uh, especially recently uh, when he updated his Instagram account to remind everybody how many goals he had scored when uh, <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo was said to have passed the record. I guess that plays into how proud he is of the accomplishments. He almost, it doesn't feel like he wants to be the one to say how great he was, but he, he wants to make sure everybody remembers uh, what an incredible player he was. I think so. It feeds into that whole pr pride thing I think we were talking about earlier and, and just making sure that people do remember kind of what, what he did and what he achieved and to make sure that he's not forgotten from that conversation. I think sometimes when it gets into those arguments, I think it's the, it just means that, you know, the very, the very few times he is interviewed, everyone's saying, were you better than Messi? Were you better than Ronaldo? And then, he, and then, and then he's forced to give an opinion. Um, so we were, we were quite happy to try and avoid that throughout the film. You know, the, the fuss around the thousandth goal is not something, it's not a show that he puts on. It's a show that everyone else puts on for him because, you know, He's holding it all together at that point, and it's, it means it means a lot for the country. It's not him. It's not him saying everybody get to the game and, and watch this one. It's a whole country with all the all high eyes of the world all on that game at that moment. No, we thought the archive at the end of that was really interesting as well. You can, he's just 
crumpled in a heap. He, he looks exhausted. And, and again, it's, it's one of those early kind of a, a little foretelling moment of what's to come in 70 when he just looks kind of knackered with, um, you know, the pressure that's been put on his shoulders and just relieved to have got through it. Well, he's not that old by football standards um, by the time no. 70 comes around. Um, but did you get that sense through making the film that, you know, starting at such a young age and all the travel he had to do and, and the different, <laughs> what comes with being that sort of figure uh, just wore on him that he, he was just done by the age of 30 years old, really? It's crazy. I think we're so used to seeing Pele as almost this kind of, he's only ever been one age throughout our entire lives. He always kind of, you know, he's kept the same haircut. He looks, he looks the same, you know, he's, kept the, he's got that incredible profile, that amazing smile. And so you always kind of think uh, 1970 is this like 36 year old guy doing it one last time for his country. And, mm. and it's hard to remember, he's actually 29 in 1970 you know all these sort of huge moments he's really really young he scored 500 goals by the time he's 22 um so I, I think there's a really telling line at the end of the film where you're expecting Pele to give you a a classic kind of Peleism where he talks about how happy he is the joy and all the rest of it and he says the greatest uh, gift in victory is relief and I think that was such I remember when he said it in the interview thinking fantastic dramatic pause now please and I, I, he's, he, he, it, it was really, really telling. And you, you, even he says it in such a tired way now that you got the sense of like, here's a guy who's had to represent his country for the last 12 years from the age of 17. He's had to kind of forego his own identity to be Mr. Brazil. And so, you know, by winning 70, you know, if, if he doesn't win 70, he doesn't even probably really gain that immortality. You know, because if Pele doesn't win 70, Pele doesn't become Pele. If Brazil don't win in 70, Brazil don't become Brazil. So that symbiotic relationship, again, between Pele and Brazil comes to the fore. So he's, again, making sure he's rubber stamping that, that national identity, um, which is kind of mad when you really think about it on, on someone, you know, that young. Yeah, we, we really like the idea that his life somehow syncs up with Brazil uh, post-58 to the point where when he's feeling good, Brazil's feeling good and, and vice versa. So somehow he almost creates this character that keys into what the country is feeling. And yeah, that's the start of, that's the start of the story really. And, and, and the film kind of takes off from there and leads you up into 70. So by the time you get to 70, there's a question in the air. Can he remember what he represented in 58? Can he remember what Brazil meant to the people in, 50, in 58? And can they recreate that in 70 and uh, try and show the Brazil that they want to show at that, at that point, which is I think everyone is questioning at that time in Brazil and, and around the world. Um, before we wrap this up, I just and I know you, you've both kind of touched on it, but um, what is your hope um, that people take away from this film after seeing it and getting to see a side of Pele that we haven't seen before? Yeah, I think it's seeing it's seeing the man behind the myth a little bit. As I said before, it's putting him in his context and understanding what he achieved uh, in the era he achieved it. Um, I think ultimately it is, a, it is a film about identity. It is a film about both Pelé and Brazil um, and how Brazil kind of achieved its identity through this, uh, you know, many different factors. But one of the unifying forces amongst it all was Pelé. And I think, yeah, that's probably the main message. I think for me as well, it's, you know, we, as Dave said, we were very keen never to do a comparison piece or never, you know, never do a kind of cross-generational comparison with with any other players or anything like that. 
But I think what, what I would like people to go away with or come away with from the film is this idea of, I think we can say Pele as a player has a kind of innate sense of occasion that I think is completely unmatched by any other footballer from, from any other time. I think all great players have that sense of, you know, rising up when it's really, when it really matters. But he's someone that just does that, turns up in big games in just a relentless fashion throughout his career. And not only does he turn up, he's able to kind of create memorable moments or timeless moments or moments as a fan that you can cling on to like no other player when it really matters and the whole world is watching something inside of him kind of clicks and he just cranks it up a notch and he, he gives you uh, as a fan and, and as Brazil as a country, something to cling on to. And one last one. Um, why do you feel he's, he's remained such a endearing figure in obviously because of what he did on the field, but is his sort of um, clean cut personality, is that part of why he's remained so in- endearing to football fans through the years? I think so. He has that winning smile. He taken on that sort of un- unofficial ambassador of football role. <laughs> I-, I think as well, I think people forget that Santos toured the world constantly in the 60s. So he was a very much, it wasn't just the World Cups. Uh, you know, we have footage of him playing in Belgium, in Serbia, in Mexico, in Colombia, in Africa. And you, you, you sort of forget that this guy was, I think there's a place in Japan where football's huge in Japan because Pele visited it once. And suddenly all this whole generation of footballers began. And I think that's the main thing why he's so loved today, because he took it to the world way before anyone else was taking it to the world. You know, there was a huge gap after. I don't think even someone like Maradona had that level of what he did for the rest of the world. And I think it's also that it's interesting about the kind of nature of fame. I think that he reached a level of fame which would not be possible today. Uh, and I think that's probably why he holds so, he holds so strong in, in people's minds, especially in certain generations. I think the way you became famous then is you became famous and everyone knew you were famous. Whereas I think now it's probably more you know, different countries see things in different ways and different demographics, different parts of the family. You know, Pele was famous for grandma, mum and dad, the teenagers, the kids. Everyone knew Pele. And I don't think you're, you're famous in quite the same way these days. And I think probably that's why he's, he hit a level which is hard for people to forget, really. Ben, uh, David, really appreciate your time today. Uh, really excited for the film. Thank you. Thanks so no much, Dan. The documentary dropping tomorrow, February 23rd, on Netflix. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, a very interesting time for the Canadian Premier League and its players. Marcel Diong is the president of the Pro Footballers Association in Canada, and he'll join us next on A Kick in the Grass. Back in on A Kick in the Grass, it's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, now happy to be joined by Canadian International, president of the Professional Footballers Association here in Canada. It is Marcel de Jong. Thanks for this, Marcel. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks uh, for for making time for us. Um, it, it's it's been a it's been a long year, I guess, for especially for the the Canadian Premier League. And uh, here you are now as president of the Professional Footballers Association here in Canada. You were recognized by Fifth Pro. Uh, last week which was good to see as well but for you what is the goal and and what are what are you looking for with the with the professional footballers association here in canada um yeah first of all it's been a really long year yeah i mean like you said um uh, a lot of uncertainties covid it's just been a really really long tough year for everyone and 
it is what it is. You know, you got to do uh, what we have to do and, uh, you know, play with the cards you, you've been dealt. And uh, I think we've, we've done okay. Um, obviously, what we want is big pictures, obviously, you know, um, being recognized by the, by the league and, uh, you know, have a, have a voice uh, and a seat on the table. And so far, we haven't uh, achieved that. Um, but that's that's big picture what we want, uh, obviously. And uh, I think we all we all everybody everybody knows our, our our points and you know what we want to achieve here. And uh, but um, yeah, we're, we're almost there. You know, we make some good steps with uh, um, you know working together with FIFPro, which is obviously huge uh, for for us and for Canada football. So um, yeah, I, I do believe we're on the right track. Marcel, I look at a situation like this, and to me it suggests just how far this league has come. I understand people are going to say, okay, well, you've got a players association now. Everybody's used to players associations in every sport and management going head to head. And clearly, clearly, clearly there are going to have to be some issues. They're going to have to be ironed out. But I got to say this from a distance. If I'm involved in that league, my first reaction to this is this just shows how far the CPL has come. Like I cannot say enough about the job the players, management, ownership, everybody did during the pandemic. And the CFLs had 100 years to get established in this country. They couldn't pull off what you guys did. I understand. Different sport, different league, all that stuff. But I don't know if there's another league in this country that put forth a better story through the pandemic than the CPL did. And this is kind of natural, isn't it? It's a natural outgrowth of that success that players would want more power and players would want a greater say in the league. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we, we obviously with uh, the whole pandemic and um, with, uh, you know, COVID and not having a season, season and uh, with all the uncertainty we all have, I, I, I do believe and I, I, I do agree that, uh, you know, the CPL you know, did their best and we made it we made it happen to have a season and uh, I have to applaud them for that and organizing it. Um, you know, obviously the only thing uh, we, we, we wished was uh, that there was some, some sort of discussion about some sort of, uh, you know, uh, issues that, that came along with, with the whole mm -hmm. transition and of having a season. But uh, no, I, I do, like I said, I do think, um, you know, uh, the CPL did a good job in, in that. I just, I just wish there was some, some little bit of, uh, you know, communication and, uh, you know, uh, with the 25% deferral and that turned into a cut. Those things, you know, a little bit about health and safety uh, uh, issues around uh, the tournament. Um, you know, obviously they did a good job of getting the, the teams out there in PEI uh, flying, um, you know, uh, uh, with teams together instead of uh, you know commercial, but then as soon as you 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 had to leave the um, you know the tournament when you got knocked out of the playoffs or whatever, uh, it was just commercial flights back home. You know what I mean? So that's mm -hmm. kind of uh, we we do care about you guys getting safe to to the tournament, but then on the other hand, um, you know, good luck going going home. Right. So those little things, but I mean, obviously. Overall, we were just happy that uh, we, we played. Um, you know, the players want to play, and that's that's the most important thing. Um, so, yeah, really happy with playing. Just uh, wish there was a little bit of better communication with the players and a little bit of transparency. I, I know it was said at the time from, from Commissioner David Clanahan that there would be discussions after the Island Games. Has, has that happened? <laughs> no, there has been zero communication. Um yeah, so that's uh, we only maybe spoke once um, 
during the PEI about certain things, but he wasn't really listening and to uh, you know be open for uh, for a discussion. Uh, he did promise us, uh, you know, uh, we we can reach out and uh, and and go from there. So obviously, you know, we we did reach out to him in a formal way, but um, yeah, I'm still waiting for that uh, email back, so to say. Marcelo, the the issues you need to focus on right away. Well, everything's economic. I understand everything comes down to money. But are there issues, you know, you referred to that, the travel, for example. Um, are there things kind of on the periphery you want to address before you get into the hardcore economic stuff? Or do you have to do, do you have to take care of the nuts and bolts economic stuff before you start looking elsewhere? Um, you know, the, the league, it's about the players, you know, we, we, the players, you know, we make this into an interesting league uh, for, for entertainment, right? So players just need to be taken care of and players need to be happy. And uh, I think that's just, you know, the biggest thing, you know, like when you're injured, you know, like are there certain things arranged for players? Or is there like pension? Is there like, uh, you know, uh, extra benefits? Uh, you know, all those little things, you know, those, those things need to be you know taken care of. So for a player to fully focus on, on playing, a player should not be worrying about um, things after soccer or, or after when they got home or when they're injured or do when they have to go to the doctor or uh, for the kids to go to school or something, anything. And when that is all in place, then a player can fully focus on, on playing and doing what they love the most and playing, obviously. So I think that's, you know, what we're, what we're going for. Marcel De Jong, our, our guest. Um, it is a new league and tight budgets. And, and certainly the, the, the landscape of the last year has, has made it even more difficult for a new league to really get its footing. Um, but, you know, they started with a, a $750,000 salary cap, from what I understand. And from what I could tell, most teams spend around 500000 um, And the average player, I think more than half the league, is making less than $22,000 a year is, is one of the big things that you and, and the Players Association need to do is, is maybe set a, a minimum salary requirement? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, we, do, we don't you know, necessarily object to a salary cap, but, um, you know, we just have, you know, an issue with um, with uh, the lack of the salary floor. I mean, this should be, like you said, a minimum wage. Uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, we you know they're professional athletes, and they, they can just like, you know, what uh, tonight? Uh, let's just have bread and, and, and milk, a glass of milk, so to say, for example. You know what I mean? And um, you know, instead of you know having a good meal uh, and resting their bodies and, and having the right nutrition and all of that. But um, they're not even close to spending the entire salary cap. So, you know, and that, and that's the club's right. And I get it. But, um, you know, we do wish the, the players were a little bit putting a little bit more money than, you know, uh, below average wage. And I think that's, you know, it's embarrassing, to be honest. You know, like it's, it's not right. Uh, players should be should be paid and uh, in a good way, obviously, with all due respect and uh, and it's just, but it's just important for players to you know, like I said before, that players are are fully focusing on on, on playing instead of worrying about you know paying their bills and in the off season leaving their their the club so they can they have to go back to their parents' place and live there uh, for three four months so they can save some money. So that that's just wrong. I think uh, they're all uh, you know young adults who should uh, be able to uh, to take care of themselves. What do you think the market rate should be for uh, a first-year professional right now? Um, because the league is mostly about young players trying, giving a a professional platform for young players in Canada that they that they just didn't have before. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, I I'm I'm not really sure what the numbers should be. Um, I do. Uh, yeah. Uh, they should live, have to receive a normal living wage where they can just take care of themselves. Uh, you know, like, I don't know, um, $20 an hour. I think that's, that's more than reasonable. And I think that's, that should be, should be more than, uh, more than fair. Uh, but uh, it's something the league, uh, league controls right now. And that's the issue for now. And once we, we resolve that, that's when we, you know, can actually uh, sit down and discuss things with the league. And, and that's what we're, you know, what we're going for and hoping for to have that dialogue and, uh, but I do want to make thing, one thing really clear, guys. We're not here to, you know, to to fight against league. We do want to, you know, work together and help this league grow. And everybody kind of makes it into a, a, a CPL versus uh, the PFA. And, but it's not, you know, we we're here for the players and for the league. And I hope everybody understands that. And I just wanted to put that out there, just for everyone, just in case that nobody uh, or someone uh, doesn't really understand the way we want to do things. Absolutely. I mean, there, there has to be a balance and uh, you have to get these things ironed out early um, or you, you might run into problems uh, later on. Uh, Marcel, it, it's great uh, hearing from you again. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see you guys on, on the pitch again soon and really excited to see where you take this with the Professional Footballers Association. Thank you today. Perfect. Thank you, guys. There is Marcel Dion, Canadian international and president of the Professional Footballers Association here in Canada. A lot, uh, a lot for the league to figure out here in the next few months, Jeff, but um, it's part of the growth of this here thing and part of the sustainability of it as well. Yeah, I think our, our hope is that somehow this turns into a partnership, right? I mean, you always want that in every league. Everybody talks about that. You want to have a partnership between players and owners, but I think this is an example of where you really do need a partnership. You know, the numbers are going to have to work out. That's clear. But I think Marcel de Jong is certainly the, the initial position of the players, if it is as he stated. It seems, seems quite reasonable. And I was thinking about the stuff that Forge FC had to go through this year, uh, you know, playing in, in Central America, the, the odyssey. Uh, it really was. It's a shame that it was done in a pandemic because it really was one of the, it was one of the most fascinating Canadian sports stories in a long time, this club uh, and, and this odyssey through th sort of the back roads of, of Central America. I think people, I'd ask people to kind of view this the way they view minor league baseball players. And that is, yes, there are guys in this league who are just using this as a springboard. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're folks with, families they're folks with real life expenses and we spent so much time especially in baseball in the past five years focusing on just how minor leaguers have no power like literally no power they 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 essentially they've got the bad stuff of being professional athletes without the good stuff that comes with being professional athletes and and soccer because there are so many leagues, right? There's so many leagues around the world and the sport is played at so many different levels. You don't want to get yourself into a position where you're kind of a fly-by-night league. And I've always felt that if you are a league that has a strong, responsible players association, by and large, you are going to be successful. Because if there is that matter of trust, it allows you... you you're never going to deal with the big issues. There are always going to be crises, and there are always going to be things 
that are just that are going to be flashpoints. But if you have good communication between a strong union and a strong ownership class, little things tend not to become big things. And that's where I think the CPL has to look at this. Have a relationship with these guys so we can deal with, for example, flights home from PEI or uh, a, some sort of a pension plan, things of that nature. Deal with those things, get them out of the way, and then when there is a big issue or if the league does take a huge step forward financially, well, now you've got common ground because you've shown your players that you're willing to work with them. The players have shown you they understand the realities of your economic situation. And it's just easier to make everybody as happy as they can possibly be. It's not always going to be perfect, but someplace there's that sweet spot where owners have a balance of being happy and pissed off and players have a balance of being happy and pissed off. That's what you're looking for. Try to find that balance. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. You know, I have a lot of thoughts on this and we'll have to get into it uh, as weeks go on and and potentially as uh, they get to the table and talk some of these things out. Uh, thanks to Marcel Dion for joining us here on the show. Coming up, injury time, and you don't know what you're doing on a kick in the grass. Back in on a kick in the grass, it's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. The She Believes Cup Canada with a record of one win and one loss, beating Argentina 1-0 and losing to the U.S. by that same scoreline. Uh, Jeff, you're... It's been an interesting tournament so far uh, from from what we've seen. Canada, without you know a lot of their top stars, Christine Sinclair, Kadisha Buchanan, Jordan Heidema, and it's kind of been the same story for Canada, really, really struggling uh, to score, even if they do create chances. Yeah, the lack of finish and the lack of clinical, you know, clinical abilities, if you want to call it that, I think is the thing that really stands out to me. I mean, if you're looking for a positive, I guess, there's a lot of really good players. There are a lot of players mm-hmm. who will be playing uh, in the Olympics and in the next Women's World Cup who aren't there. So it's good to see some of the young players. Uh, midfield and defense, I've, frankly, I've been a little surprised. Uh, and that, that's kind of what I, what I wanted to see. I think, I think the finishing will come eventually. The finishing will come eventually. What I like about the two matches that I've seen so far is they you kind of get the sense that, that the guts of the program are still pretty good. You know, considering we haven't had a lot of international soccer lately, uh, considering this team hasn't played a lot of international international soccer, I've been really impressed with the way Bev Priestman has been able to sort of, to tactically at least, seem to have a handle on this group of players. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't think you can read a great deal into into the first two matches. As I said, other than, yeah, the, you know, the lack of, of finishing remains an issue with the Canadian team. Look, somebody is going to have to score goals other than Christine Sinclair at some point mm-hmm. in the next four years. And, and it's not just finding somebody who can pop up with the odd goal. You have to have somebody who can be your focal point offensively. You have to be that person who is going to be the point of emphasis on attack, uh, in attack. And we haven't seen that so far from anybody. But, you know, the match against the U.S., I'll I'll put it this way. I've seen Canadian women play the U.S. a lot, and that was far from being the worst match I've seen by the Canadian women. Yeah, they definitely deserved a goal, had a a number of chances uh, in that game. And um, it's it's good to see them back because it's been uh, pretty much a year since they've played and uh, hopefully 
We'll see them perform well at the Olympics this coming summer. Uh, also, Everton with a big win at Anfield. I know our producer, Derek Brandeo, very happy about that. But um, I think it's the story's more lying with Liverpool and uh, the, their continued uh, quest down the Premier League table, Jeff. They just, they just keep dropping. Yeah, they don't have any answers. They don't have any answers because they're a thin squad right now. And I don't think that uh, I don't think there's any, you know, I don't think there's any other there's any other way to put it. Um, this was probably predictable, given the type of football they play, given the type of given the amount of football they played coming out of the pandemic. It was probably it was probably predictable. But they've never really they haven't really righted the ship since Virgil Van Dyke went down, and not having Trent Alexander Arnold for a while didn't help them either. They just look tired to me. I mean, they they really do. Even that front line looks tired. It's not for a lack of in- industriousness. I just, I just think they're bagged right now. I really do. Like they look to me like a club that would desperately, desperately love the season to be over in the next week. Uh, there's a, a good stat that came out. Carlo Ancelotti has now uh, defeated Liverpool five times, well, with five different clubs. I'll throw it out to the listeners of A Kick in the Grass. If you know the five clubs, uh, let me know in a DM at DanRicho underscore. We'll shout you out next week here on the show as for our fantasy league another big week across the kick in the grass fantasy at premierleague.com Nacho easy uh getting the big point score of the week 68 cool. duop were with the uh big score of the week in our premier league fantasy you can join premierleague.com use the code ppibd6 and you'll get a shout out here on the show we close it out with you don't know what you're doing best intro in sports radio i love it uh you don't know what you're doing uh i gotta call out arsenal this week jeff just looking at their transfer strategy we talked about lester last week and how so how efficient they are with the money that they do end up spending and how they replenish players that have left and moved on oh arsenal i mean what we we kind of haggle them for being a budget team, but look at the the guys that they have spent on. I mean, Nicholas Pepe over seventy million quid, and he had like seventy minutes over the weekend where it was just like, is is he even on the field? What what was he doing? Did he did he enter the game at any point? And they lose to Manchester City one nil. Willian is an unused substitute. I mean, they're paying him an arm and a leg on salary, even though they didn't pay a transfer fee. If you're Arsenal and you're going to try and compete with the big four now, at least the big spenders in the Premier League, you can't keep having this kind of a transfer strategy. It's got to be better. They don't know what they're doing. No, they don't. And they they seem to have fallen victim to the let's go for the sexy name or let's go for the let's go for, in the case of William, uh, you know, a guy we know, a guy who played well against us, which is a horrible thing. I hate when team when clubs do that, you know, especially if you're not a good club. Chances are you shouldn't go for the guys who were who were good against you because they were good against you because you stunk more than anything else. And uh, yeah, their transfer policy has been has been awful. Uh, and it, and it's not just that. I mean, you look at guys like Ceballos; they have a whole bunch of players who look like they're, uh, you know, who look like they're surplus to requirements. 
And, and who are the guys that are standing out? I mean, it's been the young guys. You know, you look at guys mm-hmm. like Saka, and, and I'll throw, you know, even Rob Holding in there, and you say to yourself, all right, if you'd taken that money and spent it more appropriately and spend it more effectively, think of where you'd be now. You know, you, there's no reason you can't be farther along, and, and especially considering this is an organization that was one of the first teams in the Prem to start laying people off when the pandemic hit. You know, they've been pretty ruthless in getting rid of backroom staff and getting rid of support staff. They were very early to that. So, yeah, I would put Arsenal there. And I'll tell you this, I'm, and I don't necessarily want it to focus entirely on, uh, on the Prem because I think the most telling match of the weekend, frankly, for me, was what we saw in Serie A uh, with, uh, with Inter and, and Milan. But I've, I've got to say this about Ole Gunnar, Gunnar Solskjaer. has to apologize for 3-1 wins and things of that nature. Look, you're playing Newcastle United. I don't know why you have Fred and Nemanja Matic starting. I, I don't know why you're <laughs> lying too deep. You've got all these... You know, we, we always talk about this team. You've got all the speed. You've got... Uh, use, take this as a chance to, to see what a guy like Donny Van de Beek can do. Or, you know, Diallo. Why are these guys here? You know, or even Mason Greenwell. I'll tell you what. I'd rather have Juan Mata get a regular start or get some playing time as opposed to Fred and Matic. They had 72% possession. 72% yeah. possession, and they looked plotting. And it drives me nuts when teams, especially at this time of the season, don't take advantage of pace. It just it kills me. It kills me. Take advantage of the pace you have. And Ole is... Ole's managing like a guy who can't decide whether his team is good enough to stay in the Champions League or bad enough that it's going to cost him or in the Champions League spots or bad enough that it's going to cost him his job. Like he's really betwixt and between. And it's it's just frustrating. It really is frustrating. It's it's funny. Like the the first five minutes of that match, I was like, wow, Newcastle's looking great. They were pressing high and and United uh, couldn't really deal with it. And they finally they figured it out. But it really comes back to things we talked about earlier. They depend too much on Bruno Fernandes and too much Mm -hmm. of their tactics from Ole is dependent on Fernandes making that breakthrough for them. And and you're right. This is probably an opportunity to see if you can develop that with a Donny van de Beek or somebody else. And they didn't take that chance. They get the result. But, you know, again, this is about United progressing forward under Ole, and uh, that was an opportunity missed in that sense. Mm. Uh, it is a kick in the grass. That's you don't know what you're doing and you're not fit to wear the shirt. You have a thought on either of those, at DanRicho underscore and at SN Jeff Blair on Twitter. Our DMs are open. Hit us up anytime with a comment on that or with a question for the show. We're back. Got to jump next- in here. Yeah. Oh, I got to jump in here. I'm not letting you. We're not. We, you're not going to get away without talking about Serie A very quickly. <laughs> well, Inter is running away with it. They're plus eleven on Juventus right now, who have to play here on Monday afternoon. But I, I will say, like you give Conte, who's maybe one of the better one one game a week coaches in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you give him, and they don't have Champions League. They don't like they're they're done. They, you give him that opportunity. It's going to be tough to catch. Inter right now after the huge Milan Derby win this weekend. Think Christian Eriksen could help Spurs? Uh, he, he, could, he probably could. <laughs> I think so. 
in an attacking midfield role, absolutely he could he could help them right now uh, as they continue to drop down the table. Hey, death taxes, Arsenal and Tottenham uh, mid-table in the Premier League. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's Premier League in 2021 these days. Uh, for Jeff Blair and Derek Brandeo, it is a kick in the grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network.